Father, we want to trust you with this time. Remove uh, the distractions. Let us be able to focus on you, hear from you. Calm our minds. If we hungry, calm our stomachs. That we might be able to focus on thee. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, uh, I am happy to celebrate Martin Luther King Day with you. Um, every year on this day, my family and I, we get together and uh, the kids know of, of a ritual that we have. Every Martin Luther King Day, there's something that we get together and do. We watch a cartoon. Well, you got a question already? Oh, I'm preaching. Come on, boy. Yes, my we Mother the King's uh, day is observed tomorrow, so it's a federal holiday where a lot of people will be off. Uh, but we celebrate it as a church today. Uh, and what he did was a little early, but it's not wrong. In our congregation, we want you to be able to understand the gospel. And so if you have a question, uh, we invite you to ask it. We just ask that you consider if the question is for the whole body, if it's something that clarifies the, the gospel or an aspect of what I've shared, if it's something that's a little more unique to you, then praise the Lord. I'd love to answer that question as well, uh, but I would do so after service. Amen. Amen. And so our family, we get together, we, we watch this cartoon and it's a cartoon that's called Our Friend Martin. Uh, every every Martin Luther King Day, uh, we'll watch it. And I don't know if the kids are excited about it because we would probably get like a little snack and it's cartoon morning or if it's because of the content. I don't know. They kind of fool daddy every year. Um, but, but, but I'm thankful for a movie like this. I'm thankful because a movie like this takes some concepts that are pretty weighty. Some realities that have existed in time that are pretty heavy. And it makes it palatable. It makes it digestible. It makes it receivable to young minds and actually lightens it a little bit. But it, it brings to the surface, it brings to the forefront uh, this issue of justice. And even my kids at a, at a young age at times have asked Rebecca and I, why would someone do that? Why would, why would someone treat someone? That doesn't seem right. Right? Right? That, 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 that term right is one of the ways that justice is defined in the Bible. From an Old Testament perspective, justice is usually looked at as the covenantal relationship of God with his people and the response of those people in faithfulness. So justice usually looks like you knowing God, God knowing you and you doing what God wants you to do. That's the just thing. But in the New Testament, it actually has a little bit of a different nuance, one of what it means to 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 achieve the standard or to to kind of hit the standard or to do what is right. That concept of righteousness, doing what is right. And so even my kids who haven't had a Ph.D. can look and see something don't seem right. If if society was like what this cartoon is 
is saying. And so justice is this thing that as we try to talk about it, we got to wrestle with it. And I'm going to try to take you on a journey today as we celebrate Dr. King. But we are celebrating Jesus. We are celebrating God. Every day we come to church, we are celebrating one and one only. It is Christ, but Christ moves through humanity. And so it's okay for us to reflect on how he moves through through humanity, but never worshiping man. Amen. Amen. And so in order for us to talk about this today, we today usually only talk about justice when we understand that something unjust has happened. Like back in the day when I grew up, there was this thing called the, the kind of conscious community. And there was these homies called the poor righteous teachers. And so you would actually say in a term of endearment to somebody, oh, that brother's righteous. It was like kind of cool. Or we kind of use it in some like not the best terms when we talked about sisters too. Like, man, she's righteous. You know what I'm saying? Like that term in culture has been used a number of different ways. We don't tend to say that right now. We don't tend to use the term righteous. We don't tend to use justice just as a compliment. We usually allow justice to flow when we've seen unjust things to happening to people. And then we have to say, what does justice look like? What does justice look like in this environment? Because people have been wronged. They have not experienced what God's standard was. And so I'm going to preach a little bit different today than I usually preach. I usually start off with the text and let the text flow the whole time. And the text is going to inform our service. Today is going to inform my sermon today. But the text is actually going to come a little bit later. Actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history of Martin Luther King so that you can understand what brought forth the need for justice. I want to explain to you a little bit because I don't want to assume that everybody has seen this deep uh, um, Gram- Grammy. No. Uh, what's the award you get when you got a movie Oscar Oscar award winning movie? Our friend Martin. <laughs> so, Martin, uh, and, I, and, I, and you can look at a variety of sources. Uh, I looked at the one that uh, actually used to be a set in my house called the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um. Martin King, he was born into a middle class family. His his father was a preacher. His mother's father was a preacher. His father took over his mother's father's church in Atlanta. They lived on what you would say was the Black Wall Street in Atlanta. They were a middle class family. Uh, He had a, a troubling situation take place where he almost took his own life because he had run away to go to a parade or a party. I can't remember which one. And when he did, his grandmother passed. And he felt so, so low that he almost he did consider taking his own life. But but uh, this guy was brilliant. And at the age of 15, he went on to study uh, at Morehouse and was accepted uh, to, to go to school and be a student there. But but he always remembered the sting of segregation. He remembered at the age of six. When one of his close friends, a white friend of his, were really close. And at the age of six, the mother said, now you all will begin to go to segregated schools. So no longer can you be my son's friend. That hurt. Put a put a put a kind of a, a, a sting in his heart. 
And so that kind of began to be relived over and over in the South when you go to a restaurant and you can't eat with where your friends eat. You can't go to church with folks that don't look like you. It was a clear separation. But right before he went to Morehouse, he went to Connecticut. And he worked that summer. And in the north, things was a little different. In the north, his mind was actually blown. In the north, he saw whites and blacks doing life together. And it was a it was a it was a monumental thing in his mind because sometimes you can't dream what you haven't seen. And so for this moment, he was able to dream of what does it look like for races to do life together? And actually, he was worshiping or saw blacks and whites worshiping together. King uh, went on to graduate from Morehouse and from Morehouse. He, I mean, King got a bunch of degrees, y'all. He went to Crozier, got a seminary degree. He then went to Boston uh, University and got a PhD. That's where he met his wife, Coretta. And they, uh, she was there on uh, getting her master's degree. Uh, They got married. And then uh, before you know it, ton of kids and uh, he's now pastoring in the south and he takes his first pastorate uh, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. Now this is important in his life because it becomes one of the first times where where we see uh, documented his willingness to sacrifice his stability. I mean, if you could pause for a second, you know, King sacrificed a lot because the trajectory of you go to Morehouse, go to Crozier, you get your Ph.D. You're not supposed to go back to a little church and start preaching. Right. I mean, Ph.D. candidate, you're supposed to enter into the, the 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 mega church of the South at that point. You're supposed to go to a seminary teaching at some point. But he feels the conviction to get involved in justice matters. And so he goes to Dexter Avenue. And what happens is the people there are realizing that that they are going to try to fight against a crooked transit system, a system that forces people uh, to 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 sit either in the back or to not be picked up so that whites can be able to ride on the transit. And so all of the preachers get together. And he does something sacrificial. They say, you are the most eloquent. You can preach, brother. You can you can encourage. You can change people. But to be honest, you also are the newest. And we have been here for a long time, have our families established. If this doesn't go well. We lose everything. You only a year in, bro. It don't go well for you. You can get another job doesn't go well for you you can move on if it doesn't go well for you you can start again you got the phd you got options and king readily takes the mantle of leading this group uh which was called the montgomery improvement association and so they were successful 
and, and boycotting the transit system and seeing the, the transit system uh, begin to make some changes. That coupled with Rosa Parks just allowed timing to line up perfectly that they could galvanize people to boycott the transit system. But in the midst of all this, his home was bombed. In the midst of all this, threats for the lives of his children and wife were being sent. Uh, in the midst of all of this, um, he was traveling the country speaking. And he realized that though there was a success in Montgomery, they needed to go to a national scale. And that's when he started the Southern Christian Leadership Conference so that there could be a national impact and Montgomery wouldn't be the only one to experience the relief, the, the freedom, the justice that God had intended. And so uh, he moved back to Atlanta. In Atlanta, uh, they realized that, um, that, that while leading the SCLC, uh, they were going to try to bring some attention towards some major issues. And uh, one of the major issues... That's all right. See, I love that, too, because that was another church member. So I'm going to give you all a break. Let me take her on out of here. You see they smiling, though? So that's just a hint. If you ever want to be a babysitter, this is how you love on couples with kids. Boop, boop. All right. Back to the story, though. Got to get serious, right? All right. The, the king recognized that there were different goals, different issues that they needed to bring great attention to. And one of the issues was college students kept being turned away as they tried to eat at counters that restaurants held. And so King said, I think this is an issue we need to run with. The, the students are ready. Let's go and let's boycott. Let's have some sit-ins. And when King has these sit-ins, he ends up getting jailed and a ton of people get jailed with him. But this one is a little bit different because in addition to just him being jailed, there's actually hundreds of children that get jailed with him. And there's media coverage of fire hoses being used on these kids and dogs being sicked on these kids. And so Birmingham becomes this national attention getter. And King is right in the heart of it, trying to bring forth justice. While King is in jail, somebody hands him a newspaper. They give him a newspaper, and in the newspaper, eight pastors have come together as a group. And that group is saying a number of things, and I'm trying to see if I captured some of their quotes but the heart of what, you know what, I don't want to do them not justice. Let me just keep flowing. This eight group of eight pastors, they come together and they basically say to King, we understand your desires, but just wait. We understand your hopes, but just wait. We fear that if you get what you want, violence will break out. So just wait. And King, with a, a, a 
discontent with a uh, amount of energy that just overflows in him. He can't wait till he gets out. He can't wait until he gets home and gets settled. Right then and there, King takes a roll of toilet paper and begins writing his response. And his response goes to the eight. Now, I I want to bring up uh, actually the eight people's names. Can you do that for me, Jake? Uh, And I bring it up because when they wrote the letter, they wrote this letter and put it in the newspaper for King. So it would be like, you know me, we're in the same city, but instead of you coming to holler at me, you try to talk to me through Facebook. I'm, I'm, I'm King. I ain't that hard to find. The folks can find me when they want to make death threats. They can find me when they want to buy my house. Eight of y'all could have found me, right? But I bring up these names because when King writes his response, his response is to the nation, but it's actually also to these eight men. And he lists their names when he responds. There's a, an, an, an issue of injustice happening. There's an issue that King responds to. Let me give you a quick phrase that he says in his letter from Birmingham. If you ever get a chance to read it, you'll be, you'll be encouraged and blessed by it. He says, uh, why direct action? Why sit-ins? Marches and so forth. Isn't, it negoti- isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation indeed. This is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiation is forced to confront the issue. This is King's response saying, you don't like my method, but my method makes you talk with me, doesn't it? You don't like my approach, but you can't ignore it, can you? And injustice is happening. And King is trying to respond. And these, these, these eight pastors feel like they're responding. And, and injustice is not something new to the believer. Actually, it's been happening since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Since the blood spilled of a brother between Cain and Abel. And so today, I actually want to let uh, uh, an injustice from the text speak because I think there's some parallels and I and I also think that the way we define justice is not the way the Bible defines it. How I should say the way we let justice play out is not the way God desires for justice to play out. Turn with me to Galatians chapter two. We're going to look at verses eleven through twenty one. I typically like jump in and break down each part. What I'm going to do is read this whole thing first because I just want you to get the story. I want you to be able to step into the story for a minute. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I challenged him to his face because he was wrong. Peter ate with the non-Jewish people until some Jewish people sent from James came to Antioch. When they arrived, Peter stopped eating with those who weren't Jewish, and he separated himself from them. 
he was afraid of the Jews. Verse 13. So Peter was a hypocrite, as were the other Jewish believers who joined with him. Even Barnabas was influenced by what these Jewish believers did. When I saw they were not following the truth of the good news, I spoke to Peter in front of them all. I said, Peter, you are a Jew, but you are not living like a Jew. You are living like those who are not Jewish. So why do you now try to force those who are not Jewish to live like Jews? We were born as non-Jewish sinners. Uh, We were not born as non-Jewish sinners, but as Jews. Yet we know that a person is made right with God, not by following the law, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we might be made right with God because we trusted in Christ. It is not because we followed the law, but because no one can be made right with God by following the law. We Jews came to Christ trying to be made right with God, and it became clear that we are sinners, too. Does this mean that Christ encourages sin? No. But I would really be wrong to begin teaching again those things that I gave up. It was the law that put that put me to death and I died to the law so that I can now live for God. I was put to death on the cross with Christ and I do not live anymore. It is Christ who lives in me. I still live in my body, but I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself to save me. By saying these things, I am not going against God's grace, just the opposite. If the law could make us right with God, then Christ's death would be useless. What's, what's happening here, y'all? What's going down? If, if you're from the D, you've probably experienced a school merger at some point. Because a, a school merger happens when one school closes down and everybody from that school gets shipped over. Now, in the school mergers I've experienced in that school merger of school, number one, it's usually a cool crowd. That crowd is kicking it. They cool. They popular. But in school crowd, number two comes in and they got their own group. And this would be like a person that was kind of be trying to be kind to the new group that's coming in and 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 trying to welcome them into the school and man I'm happy y'all here you know we used to be rivals but we're going to get along now it's all good and then they see the cool kids coming swag and all they see the cool kids coming and what do they do turn their backs on the people that they were just trying to care for that's 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 what's just happened here. That's what just took place here. That's what that's what Paul is saying. No, no, no. That's hypocrisy. Would, would you say that that is right living? Would you say that that seems to be a bit of at least to the new kids, a bit of an injustice? How could you? Treat me one way here and another way here. And the reason why I'm calling out this text is actually because it connects really well as I did more research on Dr. King. Because look at the people that are mentioned that act up. He uses Peter and Barnabas. Barnabas was a homie 
of Paul's and they went on the first missionary journey together. This is like what and you name it if if it's uh, a new business that you're gonna start the person you pick if it's you know we about to play this basketball game against this crew for money and i need to get my homie that i know is gonna help me win like whatever it is that you say i got my idea of the person that i want to be successful with that was barnabas barnabas's name is the encourager this brother is spoken of for having Holy Spirit faith for just being a a celebrator. And in a dispute with with Paul, Paul doesn't want to take Barnabas' cousin. Barnabas says, all right, Paul, whatever. And he pours into him, pours into him. And later, see, when Paul sees that he's matured, Paul's willing to take John Mark. I mean, this is Barnabas. Don't, don't Don't let me start talking about Peter. who the rocket who the church is built we talking about peter like why am i why am i bringing this up i'm bringing it up because what you could do as you look at simply this text alone is you can see barnabas and you can see peter and you can see the situation as what characterizes these people for their life you could see him speaking into a justice matter as that what defines them but it doesn't actually when justice goes forth in a God centered redeeming way, justice realigns you back to what God intended. And so Barnabas isn't just done now up. Oh, I'm a hypocrite. It's over. He does as the Christian should. I've been called out. Now, let me get right. I've been called out. Now, let me stop being hypocritical. I've been called out. Good one, Peter. I mean, good one, Paul. Now, let me move forth. And as I was doing more research on these folks, these eight people who came up with this letter, because I'm like, man, this letter was amazing that King wrote. I mean, the eloquence, the, the ability to tried to identify with their frustration, but let them know their frustration wasn't justified in slowing down the freedom of Negroes. Like it was just, it was beautiful, but it made me say what would lead other Christians to write such a letter to him. And so I came to find actually a book and some articles that, that some of the sons of these eight men wrote. And these men say, wait a minute, y'all, y'all have it mixed up. Y'all saw the list of the eight. It was in the newspaper. But that group actually existed prior to writing that letter. That group actually were men that were trying to advance racial reconciliation and actually were getting different types of death threats from segregationists. The people who wanted to see segregation continue hated these eight men because these eight men believed in advancing culture, but they thought basically if we do it the way black people want, white people will kill y'all. That was their posture. It was, it was, we think that violence will happen to everyone. And so because we don't want to see violence happen and you know, 
they, they confessed that they wanted to take their time with it. There was a new government that was in charge and they were hoping that the new government of the city would actually move things forward and King wouldn't need to do sit-ins. But these, but these men, Yep. These men, they saw themselves as trying to do the right thing. And they they admitted they they made a mistake. They admitted that they wish they had done things differently. They admitted that in trying to take a step for reconciliation, they did it the wrong way. First off. You don't communicate with somebody through the newspaper. They realize it, that forever they have suffered the, the mischaracterization of their agenda because it was in the newspaper. So I, I was mad. I was uh, really angry when I first started reading their letter, because I'm like, who would write this to Dr. King? He out here fighting, and it's going to be pastors. Like, I was heated. But then as I started reading, I realized this was another one of those Paul moments. This is one of those moments where Dr. King says the Christ-like thing to them, and it resets them. And it changes how they continue on living for Christ. It, it, it was not him fighting against simply his enemies as it was perceived in the letter. Justifiably so, if you would have read the letter in a newspaper. But it was actually some people trying to do good, tripped up and chose the positive folks in the crowd, and then got realigned as they lived out the rest of their life. And I say that because... There's a documented history of three of the um, three of the list. There's others. They basically say, do these three things. Go listen to the sermons of these men. You listen to their sermons. You're going to hear gospel proclamation trying to advance racial reconciliation before they wrote the letter to King. And you will hear it after. So one, that's a testament to their character. But two, and this is this this blew me away. Can you bring that list up, brother? And one has a bolded name of it. Bishop Durick, he was one of the eight. But he became a civil rights crusader who was the only one that was white on the platform during the memorial service for Dr. King in Memphis. After the assassination of King, Durick gave a three-minute eulogy along with his widow, Coretta Scott King, and other speakers. You see, true justice is not punitive. And today, we can see justice as punishment. You did my people wrong, I'm going to show you what wrong is like. Let me show you how I'm going to treat you. Or you did, no, no, no. Justice should be restoring people back to get right with what God intends. That's justice. That's Paul. That's God using even Dr. King.
And I pray that that would be our posture as a as a mixed community. Sometimes y'all didn't have to check me and sometimes I had to check y'all. We got to check it. This is what doing life looks like. But don't write each other off right away because of one scenario. My prayer is that the justice that we seek would encourage us to renew our minds and continue in the fight together for God's glory, for kingdom advancement. But there's a few points I want to make sure you walk away with. Number one, you got a problem with somebody, go talk with them. Keep that, keep, just keep that simple. You know what I mean? Don't tweet me. Don't, don't do nothing. Just come talk to me. Problem number two, you might be one of the eight in a situation. How do you respond when somebody calls you out? It's cool to see the posture of these men who you don't know their stories very well, but they they kind of suffered with the weight of being classified as people who were anti the revolution when actually that was their heartbeat for the rest of their life. They lived misunderstood. What's it what's it look like for when somebody calls you out? Can you know that God you see and you see alone? And I can live for you. But then also some of us are called to be the ones who call out. Some of us are called to be the ones who take those darts who are going to carry a weight that's heavy. And my prayer is that when you call somebody out, we do it with the heart of justice that is restorative. family, we, we have the, the example of the greatest prophetic speaker, the one who called out society, but also called out our hearts. We have Jesus Christ and repent and believe is a key theme throughout the gospel. You can't become a believer. You can't experience this spirit. You can't know this God without the beauty and the reality of repentance. But notice this. In Matthew 9, chapter 36, he says something simple as he comes upon these crowds, these people. And this is, a, this is in the context of the harvest, meaning people that will come to faith. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What is your justice like? Is your justice a justice with compassion? Is your justice a justice that comes to restore? Or is your justice a justice that comes to punish? My sister. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen, amen. I, I hope my answer answered it because I don't know the rest. Let's be a people family that that pursue justice. This is what it means to be a believer. But there's a way in which we do it that brings God glory and allows us to die daily. Let us pray. Father, you are our perfect example. 
justice matters hurt. When there are situations that take place and we see injustice happens, happen, it hurts physically. We think of trafficking issues. We think of uh, incarceration issues. We think of all these issues and it hurts. So it's tough for us out of that pain to want to be restorative to others. It's tough to, for us out of that weight, that burden, that pain to want to be compassionate towards others. It feels good sometimes, Lord, in our flesh when we punish and make others feel the pain that they've caused. And Lord, that does not reflect you. Vengeance is yours. You are the great king and we are called to model after you. So Lord, free us up to be your people that can respond in redemptive ways, even as we fight for justice. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.